let's rise again from our seats as we receive our scripture reading that comes from Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 through 30. This is his word for us today. The Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fire furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace." Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fire furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they, they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fire furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Good morning, Gaze PT. How are you doing? Good. Uh, it is that time of the year again. Can you look at each other and uh, say, repeat after me, please join a community group soon. Okay. 
I invite you to uh, pray with me, uh, to engage in a time with intimacy with God. Uh, we are so distracted, and we need to hear God's word whispered into our ears. So as we pray, uh, feel the hand of the Lord envelop your shoulders. Um, have him draw you close and whisper today's word into your ears. We need this. So let's pray. Father, please gather your people. Let them listen to your word and receive life upon life. Help them know that the gospel and the mercy of Jesus Christ is always available in our hardships and our difficulties. Help us live, therefore, not as people who are driven, but as people who are called. Help us be called by your voice into the future, into salvation, into uh, your glory, Father. And as we live in the midst of immigrant life here in America and sojourners in this world, Father, I pray that you would provide us mercy and joy and power every single day of our lives. Please comfort the hearts of the many people here that are suffering from the symptoms of not having a perfect DNA match with this world. Uh, Father, be with those who have cancer right now. Be with those who are uncertain about their children. Be with those who are scared for their financial situation, help them know that there is a heavenly home awaiting us and that you are here to bring us there. May the word have impact and fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the will of God be done today. Um, before we jump into this, I want to let you know like why we are in a practical sermon series. Every year around this time, we have done a practical sermon series. Uh, the first five were about the emotions. Uh, last year was about the book of James. And this year, we're doing Daniel. And why are we doing practical sermons? Uh, I really hate how to do sermons. It sounds like a self-help book. Um, but why are we able to do this? Because we've preached on the mission of God just before. In other words, if you don't know who God is and what he is doing, uh, any practical advice given to you will only help you, uh, I'm sorry to say this, go to hell faster. Uh, how to manage your money, how to have better relationships, how to feel better about yourself. That can euthanize you into going to hell if you don't know who God is and what he has done for you in Christ. But... If you have eaten the theological steak of, of June to August in the Mission of God series and you know what God is doing, then we digest this. And all that this sermon series is now is how to utilize our lives for God's glory and not for my own personal gain. Amen? And so let's listen to this understanding that we are saved by the mercy and the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're using our lives to glorify his name in all of our circumstances. With that said... Uh, let's go into today's sermon. I'm going to start with a, uh, hopefully, or probably a fictional story. Um, there was an oil tycoon celebrating his birthday uh, on a huge uh, cruise ship, on a yacht or something, right? And on that boat, uh, it was during evening, and on that boat there was a huge swimming pool. And the swimming pool had a lot of sharks swimming in it. No one could enter the swimming pool. And this oil tycoon says, I have an announcement to make. Ding, 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 ding. And then he says, this is my lovely daughter. And she's here in front of you today. And I have a proposal to make to you. If anyone jumps into the water and swims across to where my daughter is, I'll give you her hand in marriage as well as half of my company. And it was dark. Uh, people could see the silhouette of the shark swimming around very clearly in the swimming pool. 
And suddenly, before the tycoon could even finish his announcements, there was a huge splash. And someone started swimming across. For his life, probably, right? Swimming really, really quickly. And the sharks were closing in and closing in. They were nearby. And everyone was just terrified of what could happen to this person. And he finally reaches the other side. He gets out. And everyone is astonished. Like, uh, you know, like what kind of man is he that he would do this? Despite the money and all that, right? And so uh, the presider uh, brings a microphone and he asks him, Sir, what do you have to say? Why did you jump in there? And guess what he said? Who pushed me? (laughs) Who pushed me? Many of us look like we're pursuing in the pool of life. We're swimming after the American dream. But if you magnify a little bit closer, we're not pursuing fame and fortune or family. A lot of times, you're actually, you have so much grit. You have so much determination. A lot of you are so uh, well-versed in life and you have so much focus. But why is that? Because a lot of us are really swimming away from sharks. Uh, We are swimming away from our fears rather than chasing a vision and a dream. Uh, And that's how a lot of our immigrant lives look like. Just like Daniel and his friends, uh, we are often pushed into life, our immigrant life, for example, and we're pushed into severe circumstances where we don't know if it's the sharks chasing us or the dream that we're chasing that is driving us to be so driven. But in Daniel's case, you know, he seems on course to fulfill the Babylonian immigrant dream. He's influential. He's had contact with the king. He's, uh, you know, connected. He's provided for by the king's food. Uh, he's wise, smart beyond all of his colleagues. And he even has divine protection. Now suddenly, a law is made that forces Daniel and his friends to bow down to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems like Daniel's friends now are chased, being chased by sharks. Before, they could have been pursuing a dream under the radar, but now they have a shark to confront, but they refuse to bow. And if if you look at them, it's like they they stopped swimming and turned around and punched the shark on his nose. That's what's happening in today's passage. Like, they stopped pursuing the dream, and they did everything opposite to the immigrant playbook, right? Like, they're kidnapped from Judah all the way in Babylon, and they're doing everything opposite of what they should be doing. What is it? Keep under government's radar, Pay your taxes, right? Get your green card. Don't screw up until citizenship. Outswim your sharks. Don't turn around and face them. But they turn around and the shark is angry. Verses 13 to 16. Nebuchadnezzar was in furious rage and he commanded that these three be bound up and tossed into the fire because they said no. In verse 17 and 18, right? It says, if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? A lot of life is like this. We never asked for it. But we are in Babylon as Christians. And it feels like we are pushed into hostile territory. And rather than swimming towards the upward calling of Jesus Christ, how many of us are living lives going in circles, being chased by our ungodly fears? And this is a question we have to ask today. How can we live a life that is called, not driven by fear? Called by God and not driven by fear. How do we make it? 
I mean, why do we feel pushed into Babylon instead of diving headfirst into God's mission like Daniel? Why do I always think of life in terms of risk management instead of adventuring for God's glory? Because we lack three things. Number one is, let's look at the slide, the internal conviction of the truth. The internal conviction of the truth in verses 17 through 18. If you can look at the slide. Verse 17 through 18, it says, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods. How were they able to say, stay so matter-of-fact? They, they seem very cold and calculated in saying this. Why were they able to say no so deftly? Why? Probably because they remembered the dream that we talked about last week. The statue of gold is reminding them of the king's dream where the statue was toppled by four successive nations by God's decree until a huge rock destroyed the whole foundation. They were sure that Nebuchadnezzar was not the chief authority over the universe. They knew with a great inner conviction that God's word is true and God keeps his promises. God is sovereign over the universe. Amen? They knew that deeply internally. And this is a really good time to ask yourself, do I really have conviction that God is more powerful than the sharks that I face? This is the truth that empowers us, number one, to be called by your hope, not driven by your fears. That's what it takes, a conviction about God and his promises and his truth and his power. A vivid and deep conviction forged by God's word, practiced and experimented on and lived out in my life. That God keeps his promises, that eternal life is waiting for me, even if I die, that the final victory of the church is accomplished and my tears will one day be wiped away. These are the convictions that we need to dive headfirst towards the calling and not be chased around by sharks in circles forever. If we started throwing people into a large furnace right now, like logs on a fire, if you don't believe in the world, none of us would be able to avoid the temptation of compromising unless we know beyond a shadow of doubt that God truly exists and that he rewards those whom he loves. Do you truly believe that? We can say amen right now, but if this was North Korea, can we say amen? How deep does your conviction need to be? Like, think of the early disciples. They could have died, like, they couldn't have died the brutal way they died if they just gathered and agreed to lie about the existence and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They're like, hey, for political power, let's gather and pretend that this Jesus figure came for us and died for us, and if we believe in him, we'll have everlasting life. <clears throat> they were crucified. They were sawed in half. They were thrown off mountains. They were stoned. They were everything, beheaded, everything. Why were they able to stay in their conviction? Acts 4, 19 through 20 is very important in understanding what kind of conviction you need. Let's read it. Acts 4, 19 through 20 on the screen, please. 
But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. It's just true for them. They have encountered the truth. That's why they have an inner conviction. They have experimented and they have seen it is true. They can't help it. And so, how can we actually live in conviction of our calling and not being chased around by your fears? Repeat after me. It's too late. Jesus has already been too good to me. Repeat after me. Keep on. Yeah. And so we'll conclude with, I can't help it. Okay. Like, if someone were to put a gun at your head and they're like, you know, recant that two plus two equals four. What do you do? It's just a fact. It's a law beyond myself. I can't help it. And that is the nature of God's existence and his promises. And the gospel said, I can't help it. He's already saved me. I've already encountered him. I've tasted and seen that he is good. What can I do now? It's just a fact. And that is the inner conviction that we need to chase after God's calling and not the world because it's just too true. I can't help it. Now, when we are certain that God's word is true, there is a two-pronged conviction that this leads to. If you are true, if you are truly certain that God's word is true, then what also needs to happen? Then we also become aware of another important fact, that obeying God is always worth it. Amen? Obeying God is always unconditionally worth it. Verse 18 has the scariest but most powerful confession ever. Number one, tier number one, I believe that God can save me because I've seen him do it over and over. Even in the most previous dream, when you threatened to kill all the, uh, all the Chaldeans and all the satraps, uh, God still saved us. But, verse 18 says, but if not, if God does not save us, in Korean, even if he doesn't, I will not make my obedience conditional to God's reward and favor and protection. Because God is worth serving despite. Amen? God is worth serving despite if I don't get what I want in this life. He doesn't say, if God gives me more wealth, more influence, more power, if he keeps me safe in the flame, then I will result in my obedience. Right? Then I will not bow down to the idol. What he's actually saying is, what these friends are saying is, even if I die, I will not bow. Why? The Christian life, they discover this, it is worth it. It is not a zero-sum game. What is a zero-sum game? It's a game you play to get back what you lost already. A lot of people say, I'm going to follow Christ. I gave up my preferences. I gave up the flesh. I gave up my idols. But I have to start getting it back now in a better spiritual way. More money, more intimacy, more relationships. And we try to break even. You never beat the house when you play poker. But Daniel is saying, and his three friends are saying what? That serving the Lord is not a zero-sum game. There is something better that they are accomplishing in their obedience. In fact, Paul says what? I count all the things that we forfeited as what? Rubbish. It is, sorry, in, in crass words, it is crap. It's like 
negative money, negative currency. If you lose it, you gain it, right? What is 10 minus negative 10? I know it's been a long time out of elementary school. <laughs> it's 20, right? 10 minus negative 10 is 20. The Christian life, losing out of protection and health and wealth and prosperity is what? More glory before God, which lasts forever. It is a negative currency that we're trying to gain back. If you gain it, you lose. And so, two convictions. God is God and I am not. He will protect. He keeps his word. But even if not, the gospel is worth it. This inner conviction is necessary for us to chase the treasure of the calling and not be chased around by sharks. The fears that drive us to respond in all these ridiculous ways that have turned into habits and even occupations by now. A lot of your occupations were created because of fear. Our comfort is that when we lose in the world, because if you're treasuring Christ, our comfort is that it is adding to the weight of glory that we will encounter in heaven. This is not me making words. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Let's read this. For this light momentary affliction, this negative in our life, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It can't be compared. It's not acorns for acorns. It's not the same currency. It's a different one. Beyond comparison, a a weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they pass by, they are negatives, that once we lose them, we gain, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Amen. Do you see that whenever you spend time with the Lord and intimacy with the Lord, and you give up on the competition of the world, that you gain so much? Amen? A lot of housewives stay at home and a tragedy of the nature of the work that they do is that it's not noticeable. Like who comes into a clean home and well-dressed children and say something actually happened? It's like, no, it's preserving the status quo and a lot of housewives feel like their work is not amounting to anything worth merit or money or fame or recognition. And so they have to go onto YouTube. They have to become an influencer. But what if time spent with God is gold in the future? What if my closeness and love for the Lord is everything? And we discover all the things that we've been chasing going around in circles in this world. Once it goes to heaven, it crumbles in our hand like dust. That is the internal conviction that you need to live as Christians. Amen. Let that sink deeply into you. We have nothing to lose. And we have all to gain. Right? Babylon cannot touch what Christ has secured for us. It's like this. It's like, let's say you have a billion dollars in your bank account. No one's going to say amen. (laughs) Let's say you have a billion dollars in your bank account. Who cares if you only have two pennies in your pocket then? Right? Right? You walk down the street with all the confidence in the world because you know that there is a heavenly bank account waiting for you because it is a different currency. And so what if you go to this world naked and not cared for, not acknowledged, gossiped about, slandered? Who cares? 
we are beloved by the Most High God. So, what do we have secured in Christ that the world cannot touch this bank account? What is it? Eternal life, fellowship with the almighty, loving, holy God, satisfaction beyond all measurable things for my soul, fellowship with the saints, joy beyond all sorrow, and infinitely more because God is infinite. The internal conviction of this truth that God is who he says he is and he will keep his promises makes it worth it. That is the first thing that helps us chase a calling instead of being driven by our fears every day. Amen? Point number two. A second thing that we lack, and because we lack this, we don't actually chase the calling in our lives. The second thing we lack is, let's look at the slide, it is taking the risk. We have to take the risk. In verses 19 to 23, then Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. He heats it up, and the three friends are thrown into the fire. That is the risk that they took to determine whether God is more powerful or Nebuchadnezzar. The risk was there, therefore they experienced God. Our problem is that we swim away from the sharks, hoping that they're not hungry. But notice, notice this. The three friends are not running away from the sharks. That's not how they live. Neither are they deliberately going out out of their way to chase sharks and hunt them down. They're not on that mission as well. They are just going towards God, and this law happens to be in their way. Right? They've avoided detection until this law was decreed. And so they were like the perfect, you know, immigrant family, right? Uh, they were avoiding all the unnecessary loopholes, uh, all the obstacles, but they were finally detected, but they just go on their way. But once they are called out, they go all in for God. They go all in. Why? Let's clarify a few things here before we move forward with risk-taking, okay? Sometimes being driven by fear and chasing a Godward calling can look very similar if you're going in the same direction especially, right? And so let's say a lot of you are working for the glory of God and a lot of you are working for yourself. All of you are making a paycheck. What is the difference, right? Let me tell you the internal world that is different. That's how you know whether you're running away from fear or whether you're chasing a calling. Listen to this. Being driven, what it means to be driven first is living a life out of a sense of deficiency in God's promises. Do you get that? It's living in response to the fact that I don't believe God will actually do what he says he'll do. John Piper, he points out in his ministry, let's look at the next slide. Every sin is a result of unbelief. Failing to trust in God and his promise for our sufficiency. Every sin comes from that. For example... The drive or the sin to fulfill my lustful impulses comes from what? That trusting, uh, that I fail to trust that God will give me intimacy. That's why I, I grab at things that fulfill my lust. The drive to steal and cheat comes from what? Failing to believe that God will feed me 
And so I have to feed myself. It's like an orphan who's been adopted. And every time the dad puts food on the table, they steal it to eat back in their, in their, in their bed because they don't know if dad's going to keep on providing the meals. That's what we look like when we run away from the sharks. You know, the drive or the sin to gossip, the push to gossip and slander comes from what? Failing to trust that God is so good to you that you don't need to put other people down. Because we don't believe that, we engage in the sin of gossiping. Drivenness comes from lack of faith in God's promises, and it will drive you all the way to hell. That's a problem of drivenness. It's focused on deficiency rather than trusting in God. So the opposite is calling. What does it mean to pursue God's calling? I need to be really clear about this because if you, if you just listen to this sermon, you're like, hey, now I'm going to go and chase my calling, chase the American dream, chase the fortune. No, that's not it. I need to be crystal clear on this. God's calling, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen? Let's repeat that. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen. That is our calling that we're chasing after. To enjoy God in the workplace. To enjoy God in my families. To enjoy God in everything I do. How do you do that? Because it sounds so weird. How do you glorify a chef? He brings out food. You eat it. And what do you say? Compliments to the chef. Give me more. Give me more. So it seems like the fear-driven person wants more, and the person calling God and tasting and enjoying it every day, he wants more, but it's totally different inside. The one who is addicted to the goodness of God and wants more every day, that's what it means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The best chef in the world is the person that people call out, I want more of your food. And the best God there is in the universe is what? I need more of you. Not 30 minutes on Sunday. I need you every day. Every single moment, I need you. That is glorifying God and enjoying it forever. That's our calling. And look at the beauty of this. This is not hindered by occupation or circumstance or age or ethnicity or gender. It's only about enjoying the Lord. Every opportunity you have is possible for everyone. A lot of people say, I'm going to glorify God by becoming a president, and then I'll show Christian influence in the world. No, that's your <laughs> parents talking. <laughs> we are called to enjoy God in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the flood. While we're being chased by shark, you desire God more than you fear the sharks. Amen. So, in this context, what does it mean to take a risk The fear of drivenness comes from not believing in God's promises. And if pursuing your calling means enjoying and holding God's promises to be true, then taking a risk simply means to choose one out of the other. Living as if the promises that you say you enjoy are actually true. A lot of Christians live like this, though. Lord, please don't let it rain today. It's an important day. We're having a wedding outside. And then they bring their umbrella. The risk is, sorry, not taking the umbrella. That's the risk. Living as if what God promised you is actually true. That's the risk. 
Daniel's friends are saying, God will save us. Okay, so much bravado, like he's so charismatic, but will he actually go into the fire? That's a risk. God will hold his promises true. How will you glorify him when you don't risk abandoning your own glory? How will you enjoy him when you don't risk forfeiting the world's lesser pleasures? How will you glorify him? How will you actually know who he is unless you take the jump, the risk? You know, taking the umbrella out, people say, that's wisdom, right? But we do that for every promise. God says, I'll promise to take care for you, take care, provide for you. So you go and take care of your suffering brother. But instead of taking the risk to be self-giving and sacrificial, I am driven by fear to cheat or lie or steal for economic advantage. We didn't take the jump. That's why you never see God working in your life. That's why you never see providence. That's why you never see authority. That's why you never see the intricacy of God's sovereignty working through your boss or working through. Like every missionary knows this. They're like, God, I needed $5,777. And, uh, but I, as I signed up for a missionary, some unknown person sent me the exact same amount. Every missionary says that. It's the same copy and paste like, testimony ever. Why? Because God provides when you take a risk. But you don't, God doesn't need to provide for so many of you, though. Because you've already got this portfolio. You already have the stock options. You already have everything that is risk-free so that you can trust in God at a leisurely rate. At a leisurely tempo. You don't need to take a risk. And my call is risk something tangible. So that you would know how God provides for that. And then you get addicted to his providence and not the world's. Because how do you get what the world gives you? You work, you work, you work, you work your butt off. But how do you get what God gives to you? Just as easily as a father loves giving to his son, God desires to give to you. But your hands are too full. And so let us risk opening the hand. Amen? This applies to everything. It's so, it's so broad. And this is how practical you can make it, though. There is something that God is challenging you. You're running away from a shark right now. Open your hand. Take the risk. And then experience what I do for you. Case PC, we need an opportunity to experiment. If God is more true or the world is more true. It's a scientific experiment. This is my scary prayer for you today, okay? May that opportunity to take a risk for the gospel happen to you this week. Amen. How else will we know <laughs> that God is good? Right? May that risk and that opportunity happen this week to you. Amen. The third, that third thing that we lack in chasing God's calling for us instead of running around in circles, being chased by our fears. Let's look at the slide. The external affirmation of the truth. It must be affirmed by the outside world. It can't just be an inner conviction. It can't just be a risk that you take. The world has to be able to see that it really is true. Right? And so what is, what is it in this case that affirms that these people are chasing after the calling of God and Daniel's friends are now more ascertained 
that they are going in the right direction, it all says it in verse 25. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, look, I see four men walking around the fire. It's crazy. And they're unbound, they're unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. God was with them visibly to the outside world. And that's how you have a reinforced drive to chase after God's calling because the world now sees what you see. You're not crazy. When Daniel's friends took the risk, they again experienced the providence of God. And here's a quick question to ask yourself. Why is my faith so lukewarm? Why do I never see God working in my life? Because I haven't risked the fire that turns my faith into sight. Do you get that? I haven't risked the fire that turns my faith into sight. That's why Sundays are so boring. That's why soon gatherings are so, such a drag. That's why living the Christian life just seems not worth it. But what if Jesus is standing right next to you, protecting you, guarding you, guiding you, providing for you? What if you saw that? Then I could lose my job. It's okay. I could lose for the Lord. It's a negative currency. Also, when they took the risk, the king of Babylon also saw God. So, it's not just the three friends that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They have more reinforced faith now. But, now the Babylonian king saw God. Amen? The king saw God. Because the world cannot see God because of their presumptions and their worldview and their atheistic understanding of the world. They cannot see God by definition. And so they see us. They read us. They don't have the Bible. They, they read us. And they only see God when we take the opportunity to take the risk to trust in God and God actually pulls through. Amen. That's when the world sees God. Their only opportunity to glimpse heaven is to see the hope that Christians hold on to when they are in their shark tanks and when they are in their fires and the lion's den. That's the only way that Nebuchadnezzar's see God. And there is someone who doesn't have a Bible right now. They will not read it. They will not believe in the name Jesus. And they will not respond to, you know, dry evangelism. They are waiting for you to take a risk in the Lord and see how God catches you. That's evangelism. How were Daniel and his friends able to obey God despite such risk for their internal confirmation and for the external confirmation? Because this had happened before. God affirmed them when they didn't eat the king's food and God revealed the, the king's dream uh, at the threat of killing everyone and God pulled through. So they're like, it worked. And so let's carry on. And then God affirms this incident when they didn't bow to the king's idol by keeping them alive in a burning fire. And they're like, oh, God has sovereignty in the fire and the elements. Let's keep on pressing on towards the calling then. Our God is invincible. And this is the cycle that later in, in, empowers Daniel to risk going into the lion's den. Because this cycle of conviction, risk, and reward. Conviction, risk, and reward keeps the life of calling active. Let's look at a graph that I made. I'm really proud of myself all over again because of this. <laughs> 
What does it mean to be, live life driven by sharks? You have an ungodly fear, and it turns into a fleshly reaction, and then you are getting suboptimal results. Aren't you? <laughs> right? Suboptimal results. What is a life chasing a calling? Conviction in God's word, the two-pronged conviction, and then leading to risk, right? Risk. And then affirmation of God's word by providence. It actually worked. And then you're like, I'm addicted to this now. What's the point of this graph? What's the point of this graph? Seeing is better than just hearing. Let's look at the point of the graph. Next slide. This is a practical sermon series. Take the risk. Let me give you four homeworks to do this week. Number one, identify the shark that you're swimming away from. You formed a whole lifestyle around running away from a certain fear. And that has given you your competency. That has given you your skill sets. That has given you your life habits. Find that shark. It is not biblical. It is a fear that you hold despite God's comfort. Number two, Find a relevant promise in scripture that applies to you, that negates that fear. Right. And then number three, take an actual risk that tests the validity of the promise, even if it means loss and sacrifice. Amen? Point three is what we need to do. Take the risk. Taste and see that the Lord is good and then become invincible. Amen? That's step number four. God does it. Experience the goodness of God. And the main point, do not dilute this. Take the risk. Jump trusting in God. The only people that enjoy bungee jumping are those who took the first jump and they're trying it a second time knowing that the rope holds them. No one enjoys Christianity except theoretically saying, God can theoretically provide happiness. God can theoretically hold me unless you actually jump. And then once you jump, it's like, this is actually fun. It's like exhilarating. Wow. By the way, I haven't taken a bungee jump. I think I'm too heavy for that. But you have to take the jump. getting close to our ending time, but I'm going to end with a uh, lesson from the swimming pool. Last week, I went to the swimming pool with my kids, and um, previously at our vacation, they learned how to dive under the water when they're able to stand back up in shallow waters. But now I'm training them to dive into deeper waters, uh, and they can't uh, actually sit on the, uh, like, stand on the ground. And so uh, they jump into the water, they jump on my arms, and I go back a little more and more and more until they have to jump into the water. And so I keep on saying, keep your eyes on daddy, keep your eyes on daddy, like don't be afraid. And they jump into my arms, they're like, hi, this is so fun. And then I tell Ilya, I whisper into her ear, here's a secret to swimming. Keep your eyes on daddy under the water. And she's like, no! The no, like when, you know, um, Luke Skywalker discovers Darth Vader's his father. It's like, no! And the whole swimming pool is listening. They're like, what just happened, right? And now all the eyes of the swimming pool are fixed on us. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so I'm like, jump, jump. Keep your wise eyes on me under the water. That's why I bought you goggles, <laughs> right? 
That's not a fashion statement. You don't look prettier. Like our whole family looks like a family of beetles with their glasses on. It's not a fashion statement. It's a functional way to stay under the water to keep your eyes on me. And she jumped. She came up. She laughed. Guess what happened? All the other kids in the pool jumped into the water after that because they knew their father would pick them up. Keep your eyes on God under the water. You've all kept your eyes on God above the water. That's, that's, that's good. That's training. What about under the water? In the fire. Next to the shark. In the lion's mouth. That's when you keep your eyes focused on it. And guess what God gave you to do that? Word and prayer. Fix your eyes upon him through word and prayer. That's what it's for. Word and prayer is not attractive to the world. But the father it points to is deeply attractive. And once God pulls you out in word and prayer, the world's going to start jumping. That's when belief becomes conviction. Hope turns into steel. Joy becomes iron. And the world sees God. That's what we need to pursue a calling. So is the main point of the sermon to risk everything so you can experience God? Yes and no. We will try to risk everything, but we will fall and fail over and over. But it's okay. The point of this book, Daniel's friends are saying, don't look at us three. Look at the fourth man, Jesus. Look at the fourth heavenly being right next to us. He, this man, this angel from God, this Jesus now, locked his eyes on the cross and ran to fulfill heaven's calling. He was not chased by sharks. Jesus fulfilled the calling and gave that merit unto us. So Hebrews 12, 2 says, look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for who, for, who for the joy set before him, his eyes were fixed on a joy, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy is this? Jesus kept his eyes fixed on the final vision of a new creation, a forgiven people, a perfect humanity, a beautiful church as a bride. And now his spirit will run to you with his eyes fixed on you, whether it's through the fire or whether it's through depression, whether it's through financial circumstances. The spirit has his eyes fixed on you and he will call you home. The point of Daniel is not to say, risk it all. Shame on you for not risking it more. The point is, Jesus gave it all. He gave it all already, and you are now secure in the hands of one who risked it all for you. Therefore, therefore, because of the ultimate security of the gospel, you can risk without risking. Amen. That's why we can keep our eyes focused on God under the water. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar asks, who is that fourth man in the fire? And that is my question to you today. For all of you who seek comfort in Jesus Christ, despite your difficult circumstances, what is it that attracts the world to you? It is a father who's holding on to a son with terminal cancer, saying, Lord, you are still precious. And the world sees another man in the fire. It is when a lonely young adult devours the word of God, and the world says, there's another man in that fire. God 
will be with you forever and ever. Amen? So, this is our practical series. Repeat after me. I will take a risk. May you come back next week surprised that it works. Amen? Praise team, come up. Remember, nobody is pushing you. God is calling you.